Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com slash quality. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. 800,000 Pennsylvanians lack high-speed Internet access. 20% of those live in rural areas. A 2011 initiative that would have helped to expand broadband access in rural regions has hit a snag as Verizon has refused to accept federally distributed funds for improving the broadband infrastructure. This locks Pennsylvania out of $140 million for improvements. There's a lot to talk about uh, concerning broadband access. Joining us to discuss the state of rural Internet access in Pennsylvania and efforts to improve it are Steve Samara who is uh, president of the Pennsylvania Telephone Association. Mr. Samara, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. Thanks for having me. Also, Mark Kritz is executive director of the state's Rural Development Council. Mr. Kritz, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having me. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. Maybe you're one of those people that does not have access to high-speed Internet, or maybe you... You're looking at it and saying, well, okay, well, why is this any different than, you know, well, what kind of speeds? We'll talk about all those things during this portion of the program. 1-800-729-7532. That is the number to call. All right. So let's start off with a little bit of background. What's the status of broadband Internet access in Pennsylvania? Uh, I'll start and I'll let Mark follow up with me. Um the 800,000 number is intriguing to me, Scott, because it's a definition of what is broadband. Uh, the speed issue has been something that we've looked at uh, for a while. I know the FCC is looking at it. Back in uh, 2004, Pennsylvania passed a statute that set broadband at 1.544 meg, which some people laugh at and scoff at and consider to be DSL uh, in today's world. But it's perfectly capable of delivering broadband to, to many households. The federal government has uh, used 4 meg down as a definition. They've used 10 meg down as a definition. I know we're going to talk about the Connect America Fund, which used the 10 meg speed. Uh, the current definition at the FCC level is 25 meg. And some FCC commissioners would like it to be 100 meg. So uh, the 800,000 person figure sticks in my craw a little bit because back in 2004, my member companies, the rural telephone companies of Pennsylvania, signed up for universal broadband deployment at 1.544. They've met that bogey and are going beyond it. So um, do we need more broadband in rural parts of the Commonwealth? Absolutely. And I hope we'll get into that a little bit more as we talk about that going forward. But so. before we do, uh, okay, talking about the number of megs here is one thing. Give us, because not everyone understands exactly what that means in the differential in, in speed, what would the differential say between 2004 and today? If you pop on, uh, there's some physics involved here, and I'm not the right guy to be talking about physics, but uh, if you pop on now as a single individual user in your house at 1.544, um, you're, you're able to do lots of things that most of us do day to day. Um, on the internet. If you have uh, your husband on or your wife on and all your kids on doing homework, the speed gets degraded because it's just a matter of physics about what we can deploy. So it's a question of how much you need per household to get that, you know, to get what you need out of the out of broadband and out of the internet. So uh, 5 meg is good for some households, 10 meg is fine, 25 meg is fine, 100 meg some people need. If you're a small business owner, for instance, and you need to be doing certain things with your business, you need more bandwidth. You need more speed. Uh, we understand that. Um, but we'll talk a little bit about take rates, too, about what people are actually signing up for and how that economically affects my member companies as far as making that decision between what you can deploy uh, and how many people are actually signing up for that service. Mm -hmm. Mark Chris? Um, well, and, and Steve, um, 
you know, obviously mentions the, the difference in speed. So, you know, you have a lot of people now who their kids play games, uh, they stream movies, and then that really drives the need for speeds. But uh, I think the, the critical point is that if you're looking at economic development, uh, if you're trying to uh, attract companies, many times that question comes back as to, okay, well, do you have high-speed Internet? And the 1.544 works in many cases, like Steve mentioned, but if you're a small business or a company and you want to upload or download plans, I mean, we even had a, uh, a pumpkin farmer in uh, Indiana County that uh, needed some better quality uh, uh, connection because uh, his uh, the company he wanted to supply to said, we do everything over the Internet now. And, uh, you know, you also have governments redesigning web pages and doing things that so much now is going over the Internet that the demands for speeds keep uh, driving up. Uh, Steve did mention about how the uh, FCC has changed the speeds as to what's uh, uh, needed for robust uh, broadband coverage. And uh, uh, the 800,000 people, and, and, and this is something I think that Steve alluded to, is that that number, um, what does it mean? And, and the truth of the matter is, too, is what is actually needed for you to do what you need to do? You know, th there's, a, there's a difference in what you need to do and what you want to do. Uh, so in many instances, from a government standpoint and from, from Steve's companies, is managing expectations. As you will be able to do this, but you won't be able to stream a, a movie at a, at a high rate. You won't be able to uh, you know, have your child playing a video game and watching a movie at the same time. Mm -hmm. You know, there would be a lot of people who would say, well, if a child has to wait a few seconds longer uh, to watch a movie, or an adult watch the movie, that that should be no big deal. Why are we spending money on it? But the business part of it, and being competitive, is that one of the questions that uh, a prospective business looking to Pennsylvania ask today? Absolutely. Uh, you know, it used to be, you know, I've been in government, uh, worked at the federal level for many years, uh, and we spent uh, uh, a career, I spent most of my career doing sewage and water infrastructure <coughs> projects because companies would not locate somewhere if they had to put a sand mound in for their sewage or they had well water. They wanted city water, city sewage, and that's now transformed into, do you have natural gas? You know, well, obviously we're blessed with Marcellus, now getting it everywhere is an issue. Um, but do you also have high-speed Internet? And it's not only for the company locating here, but they want their employees to be able to access it as, access it as well. So, you know, to Steve's point, the 1.54 down serves to a point, but people have higher expectations now. And if we're going to keep rural competitive, uh, if we're going to make sure that rural has an opportunity to play in this game, we have to at least be competitive with the more urban and suburban areas. You know, Mark, I think what you just described could, uh, I mean, we could have that same conversation on many of the shows that uh, we produce here as far as how infrastructure has changed. Yeah. I mean, that's not that long ago that you're talking about, uh, you know, someone asking about a sand mound, and now they're asking about high-speed Internet access. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And if you look at the way commerce is, take, is done, even the way government is delivered now, how much of it is through that wire? Uh, you know, and then if you look at a child that goes to school, the school is wired, they get homework and they go home and they don't have the same capacity to do the work at home. So they're sitting in a uh, McDonald's parking lot trying to get Wi-Fi to do homework. Or, you know, if it's healthcare, more and more healthcare is now being delivered via telemedicine. And so you can look at so many different components. So if you're a company looking to locate in a certain area because of whatever reason, and you look around and say, well, the hospital, the health care is not as robust as it could be. The education is not where I want it to be. You know, then it puts rural at a very big disadvantage in competing. I think I, I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyway. Is rural being left behind? Is this an example of rural areas of Pennsylvania being left behind? So I guess as an example, uh, had a Rural Development Council meeting three weeks ago. Uh, from the Department of Education, the, the discussion turned to rural schools don't have enough teachers. They don't have enough principals. They're not delivering as many high-rigor classes as urban and suburban areas. 
if they had access to high-speed Internet and you could pipe in those kind of classes, you would be offering those kind of classes to rural. So rural hospitals don't have enough doctors. So is rural being left behind? It's not just broadband. There are other areas that rural is not at a competitive uh, on a, an even competitive playing field as their more urban and suburban counterpart, counterparts. So, Steve, what has to happen to bring broadband to rural areas of Pennsylvania? A couple things, Scott. Um, first of all, we need to keep the current support mechanisms that help us deliver uh, even basic service to rural parts of Pennsylvania. Uh, the Pennsylvania Universal Service Fund is that one of the support mechanisms that we use to keep basic service affordable. You look at even dial tone, on which the broadband network is built, is a basic voice network that my member companies have, have built. And these are uneconomic areas to serve. It, it, I don't hate to be blunt about it, but they just are. Uh, your question about is the rural being left behind. In some respects, it's yes, because... These are areas with very low density population, very high cost to serve, and we need to keep our current support mechanisms. The Pennsylvania Universal Service Fund is one of those mechanisms to keep service affordable um, to the people that live where there may be a couple lines or homes per square mile. Um, so we've been working on legislation to address that issue for a couple years now to make sure that uh, basic service is affordable to those people. But as I said, all the bells and whistles of broadband are built upon that basic network. So we need to uh, uh, work at you know, making sure that we have those support mechanisms available. A couple states um, have done different things as far as getting broadband out to those parts of, of their states, the rural parts of their states. There are broadband funds. Um, California, for instance, just passed a broadband fund to make sure that everyone has access to it. All of my member companies have already met that bogey of Act 183, but that's now 13 years old. So uh, that 1.544 bogey has been met, but is it is it enough uh, in today's environment? And I think as we've discussed here in many applications and instances, it's not quite enough. So we're working to make sure that we don't lose any more support to make sure that that happens and make sure that digital divide doesn't uh, broaden, that chasm uh, doesn't become even 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 bigger. So. Uh, what costs money? Uh, Fiber costs money. Fiber is essential to move out from a central office to get broadband speeds out further. You can do a lot of things with copper you couldn't back in the day. And every every day you see companies being able to do more with copper. Um, but fiber costs money to get out there to people. And it's a distance uh, issue. Uh, when you move out from the central office to get the speeds that people require out further from the central office, uh, very expensive, tens to hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars per mile to get fiber, to get broadband out further from the central office. All, And please realize that you're not getting everyone signing up for it. Um, it, it sounds kind of uh, dramatic, but it's not if you build it, they will come type of scenario. Uh, folks need it. Folks want it. Uh, but not all the folks need it and want it. Um, so my member companies um, are kind of balancing that that paradigm as to as to who needs it, who wants it, and whether it makes sense for us to, uh, in uneconomic areas, put fiber everywhere. When you say uneconomic areas, uh, I think people understand that's basic economics. Mm -hmm. But uh, to keep it affordable is the line I keep hearing from you. Uh, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that there are people who are in populated areas where there are a lot of customers who would be subsidizing those where there aren't as many customers? Well, you take a look at the areas where we serve, where my member companies serve, even in the populated areas. And my, my member companies are all rural local exchange carriers, so they are rural companies. They serve anywhere from 1,000 customers to a couple hundred thousand customers. In the grand scheme of things, they're all rural areas. We have a few, not urban areas, but higher populated areas. Let's take Carlisle. Um, um, if you take a look at what people are actually signing up for in those areas, uh, you'll notice that, and the price points between 3 meg, 5 meg, 10 meg, 25 meg or higher, 
uh, at least the, they've been compressed, the prices. So at least at those slower speeds, uh, there's not you're going to be paying ten bucks for ten meg and a hundred bucks for twenty five meg. They're very they're very compressed, and you'd be maybe you'd be surprised at how many people actually take the slower speed um, because that they just don't need that. Um, so it, it's a question of doing that balance, as I said, is, is what what customers are willing to pay for and uh, what they need to do their their day to day business. And as Mark referred to, there's a difference, obviously, between residential and business customers on broadband. And, and just to, to build on what uh, Steve said, and, and about not everyone takes it. Um, you know, I mentioned we uh, I made it uh, spent a lot of my career doing sewage and water infrastructure projects. Well, those are utilities, they're municipal uh, authorities, and you're required to tap in. So in many instances, that requirement is what made projects in rural areas actually affordable. With broadband, they're not required to. And, and you know, what we've seen is that the more we educate people, um, which is a difficult task in itself, the more people say, oh, yeah, I, I should get this. You know, I, I, I could use this. Um, but in rural areas, and, and I really applaud Steve, uh, his group, um, even, uh, you know, you look at the uh, co-op model at uh, Rural Electric. I mean, what these small rural uh, companies are able to do is really pretty fantastic, that they continue to provide excellent service uh, in their small sort of economy. We'll talk about the funding in just a moment and what is being jeopardized for Pennsylvania. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists from Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about expanding broadband internet access here in Pennsylvania, and especially in the rural areas, and some of the challenges being faced, and some funding that Pennsylvania could be losing out on. We'll be talking about that in just a few minutes. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWIT. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Joining us on the line now is Dave Dave Hagen, Jr. He's the owner and CEO of Double Dog Communications in York County, uh, which provides uh, wireless service to uh, a a good chunk of uh, rural York County, and I think a good example of uh, some of the things we're talking about here. Mr. Hagen, how are you today? I'm great. How are you guys? I'm doing well. Well, first of all, tell me about Double Dog Communications and what you're looking to do in rural parts of uh, York County. Double Dog Communications, we've been in business since 1996 as an Internet provider. Uh, We started out with a dial-up and went to DSL, the T1 uh, telecommunication lines, which are the 1.544 megs, which you guys have been talking about. Um, to deliver Internet service. And then, of course, from there, the cable companies as well as other uh, providers have increased their bandwidth uh, to basically meet the demands. And we provide services in your county via wireless from water tanks or towers or grain silos or uh, higher places in the community uh, to people that are underserved or have no service. So you are facing some challenges and some hurdles, though, correct? Um, Every day. (laughs) In what way? Well, one of the reasons is financial. Uh, The banks or lending institutions that we currently deal with or have dealt with uh, have a hard time uh, funding the wireless or broadband initiative via fiber or wireless that we provide. Uh, because it's it cannot technically it's not brick and mortar, so they can't get their hands on it. They can't resell it. They don't know what to do with it. Uh, therefore, the assets that are on residences, houses, or on the poles or whatever 
uh, pretty much rendered useless to them, and unless there's brick and mortar to support it financially, they don't want to fund it. Um, the other issues that we're dealing with, of course, are, are spectrum. Uh, and spectrum is the frequency that we transmit uh, radio waves through the air to provide high-speed Internet service. And the more and more devices that are out here, the more and more it gets uh, complex to try to get that signal through, or it gets congested where the speeds aren't as great as they should be because of noise interference. Um, we currently provide service to about 1,200 subscribers, um, and you know we we constantly face the battle of people needing more and more and more bandwidth. So, how would you get that bandwidth? Well, money. Uh, you'd have to buy higher speed radios to go from tower to tower, or uh, you need to deploy fiber uh, from tower to tower, or you have to lease that infrastructure from a telco, uh, either a Level 3 or a Verizon or an AT&T or someone like that, uh, to basically to deploy more bandwidth to these rural areas. Let me ask you this, Dave. Uh, are there customers out there? I mean, are you hearing from the rural areas? Now, you're just in your county, but are you hearing from the rural areas of your county that this is something that we want broadband Internet access? Yes. I mean, I currently deal with Kristen Phillips Hill, the uh, congresswoman State in rep, York yeah. County. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and Kristen is a wonderful advocate for us for Southeastern School District. And Southeastern School District did a great thing and a bad thing. Uh, they basically provided all the students with laptops and iPads far as with a grant from the federal government or the state far as money to get these children better education far as through cyber uh, devices. The problem is, is we are faced with a challenge um, and being asked to provide high-speed rural broadband down in the southern end of York County alone. Um, and with topography itself, with trees, hills, rocks, and what have you, our issue is trying to deploy this service for rural broadband in that area. Now, Miss um, Hill went to DCED in Harrisburg and asked them directly, show me the maps for the state that rural broadband is provided. And rural broadband, they say, York County is, is covered. The problem with that is, is that the cell carriers provided those maps stating that they cover rural broadband in that area. The issue is, is the cost of the services where they charge you so much per gigabit or as the data usage, it's basically ridiculous to where a family of four can't afford it. So we come back to that affordability issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what what had happened with the CAF fund that the one gentleman was speaking of as far as that Verizon didn't take the money? Verizon didn't take the money because they opted out of the program. All the other carriers did. There was $3.8 billion that was divvied out from the federal monies to different providers to provide high-speed Internet access for 3 million subscribers. That problem with that is is that our taxpayer dollars basically paid to build that infrastructure that was given to the, the cell carriers so they could then turn around and bill us for high-speed Internet access and fill their pockets even deeper. Mm-hmm. So they got a brand-new free network paid by the taxpayer dollars and yet still charge us for that service. Dave Hagan Jr. is the owner and CEO of Double Dog Communications in York. Hey, Dave, thank you very much for being with us today. All right, thank you. And I have to mention that uh, a listener, regular listener to the program, actually called and suggested having Dave on the show because, as she said, you know, she likes to shop local rather than uh, with the the bigger carriers. But, Steve, your thoughts on uh, what Dave Hagan had to say? I think Dave hit hit a point that we've all been talking about, both uh, at the state level and nationally. Um, We're trying to get broadband out the last mile to the last house at the end of the line and um there are various ways to do that um his 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 
thought that this money has come in and there's millions and millions and billions of dollars coming in uh, to get everyone broadband. I would take a little bit of exception to because of the cost my member companies face in getting that last mile out to people. Um, the fact, and it does sound like a lot of money, it is a lot of money, but is it enough to get broadband out at whatever speed um, to the last house at the end of the road? And in most cases, it isn't. And talk a little bit about the Connect America Fund, which I think what that's, Dave was referring okay, to. Well, let yeah, me, let yeah, me go into that next, that. Okay. because that's one of the main reasons we're here today discussing what is the Connect America Fund. The Connect America Fund was established by the FCC to push broadband out further, to take it from the central office, which I referenced before, and take it out further um, to folks in, in very rural parts of, of the nation. Uh, Verizon didn't take the money. Uh, they made a business business decision not to take the money. Uh, Verizon is not a member of mine, and I'm not going to be a Verizon apologist, but I can tell you they made a business decision not to take the money because the money was a minor fraction of what they would need to get that 10-1 bogey. There was a 10-1, 10-meg bogey attached to the CAF funding, and while it seems like a lot of money, uh, in the grand scheme of things, it just ain't. Uh, you, you can't get there with the money that was being drive, dri- driven out of the CAF fund. So some of my member companies did take the CAF money, but you take a look at the, the money was driven by an FCC cost model, um, which basically says you can't go to the highest cost areas of the Commonwealth for this money. Because the FCC also recognized that these are uneconomic areas to serve, and we may be spending a million dollars to get five people um, on broadband. Is that a good investment of taxpayer money? Because this is where it's all coming from. It's all boils down to us. So uh, my member companies used that. Some of my member companies used that CAF money to push broadband out further at higher speeds uh, to get that done. Uh, but while it may seem like a lot of money, in the grand scheme of things, it just isn't. Scott. Okay, so as I mentioned in the introduction, Verizon not taking the money jeopardizes Pennsylvania getting $140 million. In what way? Well, we are a net uh, contributor state to the Federal Universal Service Fund in Pennsylvania, uh, have been for, for a while. Uh, so there's a natural sensitivity to... Um, where that money's coming from, who gets the money to use it. We're a rural state. We're not as rural as Wyoming or Montana, but we certainly are a rural state. We have a lot of rural population to get that done. Uh, so I know that the, the Public Utility Commission and the governor and uh, congressmen and others have been uh, writing and calling the FCC saying, hey, you know, we, we need some of that money back just because one of our member companies made a, or one of our companies made a business decision not to take the money. Uh, we need that money back. So um, we'll see where that all goes. Well, but. just to be just to be clear, if Verizon okay, Verizon made that decision not to take the money, does that jeopardize the money for the companies that have accepted it? You could make a case for that money going back into the pot as as the the, okay. the, the, the decision that the FCC is making now is uh, whether we reallocate that money out to the rest of the country or whether we keep it in Pennsylvania, and whether other companies in Pennsylvania would take the money that Verizon left on the table. New uh, York. New York. I'd like to talk about New York mm-hmm. because New York had the same situation. Now, in their situation, it was $170 million rather than a, 140 a little bit bigger population, maybe more rural areas. But uh, New York actually asked for the same thing from the FCC to get a waiver, and they were able to keep their $170 million. But one of the reasons that I understand that they were able to do that is that uh, they have a dedicated funding stream for broadband projects. Pennsylvania does not. So, I mean, New York being able to get this waiver, is it something that we should, we, meaning Pennsylvania, should look at favorably and say, oh, we have a chance? or not. Well, before I let Mark weigh in, because I know he wants to and he should, New York is a little bit unique because they had half a billion dollars in another settlement sitting there unrelated to broadband that they used to set up a fund on broadband. So they're in a, in a, in a nice situation to be able to have that money so they could prove, I guess, to the FCC that they had a broadband fund. They had half a billion dollars already dedicated to that uh, and that helped their cause in getting that money yeah. back. But well, and, and I think the, the point here too is that 
the FCC, uh, well, it, it, to even step back a little further to Steve's point, this is money that uh, Pennsylvania has been a net contributor to this fund, and we don't get as much back as we put into it. So this is truthfully Pennsylvania money that the FCC was de- determined was supposed to come to Pennsylvania to do rural broadband. Uh, Verizon, you know, as uh, Steve said, made a business decision and said, no, we're not going to take the money. But it doesn't change that the FCC calculated that that's money that should have come here in the first place and that we have to now make a case that, well, we're going to come up with some programs and match this money, I think is not the relevant point. It's moving the argument to a place it shouldn't be. This is money that Pennsylvania needs to expand rural broadband. Who does it shouldn't be uh, solely reliant on who the incumbent is. Uh, this should be an opportunity for Pennsylvania companies to, to move in. And, and the truth of the matter is, at the, in the, the governor's office, we've been talking about this for, for over a year, about how we do this. We've been, I know the governor's office, DCD, has been working with Senator Casey and the congressman, uh, Senator Toomey, to lobby the FCC and say, this is Pennsylvania's money and we should get it, or at least be given sort of a... a, a you know, a, a bonus for it having been targeted for Pennsylvania in the first place. But to that point is that the governor has really been looking at this uh, this issue uh, and has a dedicated person within his uh, executive staff, has a dedicated person in DCED, trying to figure out, okay, where do we go from here? This um, Connect America Fund was just sort of the point that said, okay, we need to uh, address this and come up with a really a state strategy as to how we move forward. How do we move Pennsylvania forward in this issue? Because, you know, as we talked about earlier, this is about education, it's about health care, it's about economic development, it's about making sure that our rural citizens have an opportunity, an opportunity to compete. Let's take a phone call from Steve in McVeightown. Steve, you're on the air. Hello, Steve, you there? One of the things Steve wanted to mention, and he was on hold for a while, so I apologize for that, Steve, uh, is that uh, he was talking about how much he pays per month, and he's with a larger Internet provider, but he's saying that he has no, he has no choice, that, uh, that if there was competition, that uh, prices would come down, and he was talking, and he's complaining a little bit about the, some of the service there. Uh, that he was getting from one of these larger companies. And I'm noticing that we're getting a lot of, of, of phone calls here and you know, people talking about privacy, talking about uh, competition. What about those things, and how does that fit into this conversation, if at all? Well, they all fit in, obviously. Competition is, uh, I think the caller was right. Um, in areas where there's competition, uh, it does help with pricing. I think that's just a natural economic model that we've all uh, subscribed to. But the question is, who's going to come and compete in uh, the most rural parts of the state? My member companies are providers of last resort, or carriers of last resort, whatever acronym you want to use. They have to serve everywhere, regardless of what it costs them to provide the service. Uh, We are the only segment of the communications population that has that burden. I I call it a burden, but it's a burden we gladly accept. We're used to it. A lot of my member companies have been around for 100 years serving these areas. So uh, it costs money to serve those areas. Uh, And as as Kohler's, as carriers of last resort, um, we have that obligation, and, and no one else does. So, uh, but it, it's it, it's a question of who's going to come out and serve those areas. And I think we're seeing the competitive uh, market move further and further out from the downtowns of Pennsylvania, from the boroughs. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, are you going to see five or six competitors out ten miles from a central office, or twenty miles from a central office, or further? Probably not, uh, unless there's an easier way to do it or a more at least less expensive way to do it. Carriers so. of last resort. Yes, I mean, that, it sounds just, so dramatic, doesn't it? it? <laughs> it, it, it really I didn't does. come up with the acronym. I, it sounds like something you'd be on the Titanic with, you know. Well, it, but Steve, Steve brought up a point: is that they are carriers of last resort. They're the only game in town because nobody else is going to do it. I mean, this is about competition. So uh, I'm sure Steve has seen it, and I know I've seen it. Sometimes he's communities start to band together to say, look, if we get internet service or high-speed internet service, we guarantee all these people will buy in. So that's part of the way that rural can start to compete and start to attract competitors. And and to uh, Dave from York County, you know, obviously you have to start talking about, well, fiber is 
uh, we'll call it hardware agnostic. As technology moves forward, fiber is able to handle it. Wireless, though, can get to places that fiber, I mean, we have to be realistic here. Fiber is never going to go everywhere in Pennsylvania. It's just too expensive. So how do we get a signal to some of these areas that is good enough? Uh, You know, I, I hate to say it in that way, but serves the purpose that's needed by that population. And wireless might be that last hurdle uh, that's needed in some of those places, and, and there's a place for that. But it's about getting customers that Dave can then go to the bank and say, hey, I've got 100 customers lined up. I need a loan for X amount of dollars. Well, one of the reasons we're having this conversation is that the the State Public Utility Commission, Senator Casey, uh, have I know the governor's office, uh, have lobbied uh, Pennsylvanians to contact the FCC and say, hey, you know, we we want this money, this $140 million. It's our money. It's our money. I want to thank uh, Steve Samara, president of the Pennsylvania Telephone Association, Mark Kretz, executive director. Director of the state's Rural Development Council for being with us. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thanks, thank Scott. You. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The state's agriculture department has issued a warning regarding an invasive species. The spotted lanternfly is a one-inch plant hopper partial to grapes, hops, and hardwoods. The fly, which arrived in Berks County from Asia in 2014, has many in the wine, beer, and timber industries concerned. To talk about uh, the spotted lanternfly today is Fred Strathmeyer, Jr., Deputy Secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. And, of course, you probably recognize his last name <laughs> this this time of year with uh, Christmas trees. Uh, Secretary Strathmeyer, welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Also, uh, Sven Eric uh, Spickinger is the uh, state entomologist. And uh, Sven, you've been on the program before. Thanks for coming back. The bug guy, as he identifies himself. Great to be here again. Thanks. (laughs) If you have a question or a comment, give us a call. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Deputy Strathmore, I have to start with this before we get into the specifics about the, the lanternfly. I, I, it seems as though we are hearing about an invasive species in Pennsylvania, whether it's an invasive species of insects, animals, plants. It seems like we hear about them a lot. Maybe there are a lot more we don't hear about. This is happening all the time, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, pretty much on a regular basis. Uh, last year, and Sven can elaborate a lot more on that, is that uh, last year I think we ran into about uh, four or five more at least uh, that were identified in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, And uh, I'd pass it off to Sven. Sure, certainly. Um, It is not uncommon for us to intercept invasive insects or invasive pathogens, plants, uh, first of all at the Port of Philadelphia coming in, but then also inland. Uh, We get a lot of detections every single year, and most of the time we can squash them out right there in the warehouse. Once in a while, though, one of them gets loose, and we don't find out about it till like a year or two years after it gets here. Sven, I noticed you used the word squash. I hope that's not like a literal term. Well, it, <laughs> it can be. It could be. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, so let's talk about this one, uh, the spotted lanternfly. Uh, tell me about it. Sure. Um, so first of all, spotted lanternfly is a plant hopper. A lot of people think it looks like a moth. It's uh, actually a very beautiful insect. It's uh, bright red uh, hind wings are extremely notable. And most people, when they see this for the first time, think mm, this is maybe not from Pennsylvania. And uh, that is actually what we thought when we first received a report from this. It was actually an off-duty game commission educator who turned this in. We do a lot of cross-training with our sister agencies, and we usually end those trainings with, if you see something weird, you're always in the woods, you know what's supposed to be there, let us know. You never know what you might find. So this was in Berks County. It was. Uh, Where did it come from? Uh, It came from Southeast Asia, so it's native to Japan, Bangladesh, and uh, Vietnam. And unfortunately, it was also introduced into Japan. And in 2006, it was found in South Korea for the first time. And by 2009, it had actually spread all over the entire country of South Korea, becoming a pretty severe pest of grapes and peaches there. Uh, In Pennsylvania, unfortunately, we haven't spread all over the entire country here, which which is great, but it is spreading rapidly now. And we are seeing some pretty severe impacts to the grape industry, for the first time this year, apples and also our hardwoods industry. Um, 
black walnut in particular and some of our maples show some very heavy feeding damage, and that's not something that we had seen the first two years. Secretary Strathmire, and I want to turn to you from just what Sven was talking about there. Why is this of concern to the Agriculture Department? Well, again, uh, if you look at uh, a $75 billion industry in the, in the industry of agriculture in the state of Pennsylvania, um, it's a huge uh, concern. Um, when you look at uh, we are in the top five uh, in leading in apples and and in hardwoods, we're number one in the nation. So these are very, very uh, critical economic impacts to uh, the state of agriculture in the state of Pennsylvania. Has it had an impact yet? Um, to date, we have uh, very little information. Uh, however, the economic impact studies are being uh, surveyed currently. Uh, we're looking uh, especially into the, uh, the grape uh, industry, the vineyards. Um, our concern is not only for our own state, but uh, this, this uh, particular pest has a great uh, ability to hitchhike. And so between hitchhiking, moving uh, as an adult, or moving as egg masses is where we are greatly concerned that it moves into other parts of the state, especially the northwest area where we have a very, uh, very strong uh, grape crop uh, uh, up there in the Erie area. But so far from what I've seen, most of the counties where the lanternfly, the spotted lanternfly, has been detected. Most are in the southeastern part of the state. Correct, right? correct. Um, again, Sven and, and his group and USDA and Penn State Extension have done an incredible job in these first three years that we have had spotted lanternfly in, in the United States. And again, I emphasize we are the only state in the Union up until two weeks ago it was identified in Delaware. But, but up until that point, it's been able to be contained uh, and that's been through the efforts of Sven and his group and, and others at PDA and USDA and Penn State Extension. Uh, we're currently uh, expanded the, opera, or the uh, quarantine area to 13 counties. Uh, but, but as Sven has indicated to me several times through this process is that it would not have been unusual as it happened in Korea to have seen this uh, insect in five, six, seven states by now. So, Well, Sven, let's talk about that. How did it get here? Okay, so international trade likely as egg masses is attached to product that was likely stored outside uh, prior to shipment over. Mm -hmm. um, there are some fairly good international laws in place that uh, require treatment of things like wooden pallets, which kills wood-destroying insects. But after those are done, if a product is stored outside and a spotted lanternfly should land on it in an infested area, it can very easily lay an egg mass on it. And there you have it. It's just a, you know, a few weeks journey over to here, and then it gets offloaded. And frankly, the egg masses look a lot like a splash of mud, and it would be very easy for a port inspector to miss it. Now, after we discovered it here, we actually worked with port authorities, not just in Philadelphia, but uh, certainly the tri-state area, Newark, and also New York, and uh, Dover, Delaware and uh, made sure that they received the proper training. And there have been some interceptions now of this coming over and stopping new introductions. But when you say quarantine, the Secretary said uh, quarantine, mm -hmm. how does a quarantine work for an invasive species like this? Okay, so quarantines basically restrict the movement of the pest and things that might carry it. In this case, it's a very difficult one because this pest is a very good hitchhiker, so it's not just stopping the pest itself, it's stopping the movement of things that it may have laid egg masses on. This time of year in particularly, we think of hunters. You put a tree stand out there for a few weeks in an infested area, it's possible to get an egg mass on it. If you have an SUV or a four-wheeler parked out <coughs> under a tree line, it's entirely possible to get an egg mass laid on it. And then you're just a short weekend drive up to, say, Tioga County, for example, decide to leave something at the hunting camp, and you've just created a, a new thing. Firewood is also an issue. Mm. Uh, does cold weather have any impact on this bug? It's supposed to, but it doesn't really. So if you think about it, uh, this range, um, we're basically at the northern end of the range for this species, and uh, it's possible for it to live all the way down to the north end of South America. And so it could literally take over uh, the whole country, if you will. It has the potential to establish there. It uses a particular tree called Tree of Heaven, which is also an invasive species. And in South Korea, that's actually an ornamental tree. They have trouble keeping it alive. 
here, not the case. It's a weed species, and we do whatever we can to eliminate it when we find it. But it's a very hardy weed species. And unfortunately, it's all over the country, so there's ample host material for this species to uh, basically take off on. All right, so what does Pennsylvania do to fight this? I mean, uh, we, we've thought over the years about uh, spraying for black flies, for, uh, gypsy moth, for example, another invasive species. What about this, Secretary? What do we do to fight it? Well, currently, uh, we're working extensively with USDA, and USDA has uh, been afforded us around $7.5 million in the last three years uh, to help with uh, the eradication of this pest. Um, we are also and have been uh, ramping up our conversations with um, our sister agencies, although I can say uh, very proudly that our sister agencies have been involved from the beginning, Department of Transportation, uh, DCNR, DEP, uh, Fish and Boat, Game Commission, all, all people that are dealing with a lot of that outside area. Uh, where you know you would expect uh, to to get uh, and have issues with this type of pest, um, and even those agencies have in either in kind or in uh, in in money actually money spent have have put forth uh, efforts to uh, begin to eradicate. So uh, taking for instance DCNR with the, the the parks and so on, they have taken a very aggressive role in eliminating Atlantis. Uh, and also in, in looking for and searching for and scraping uh, egg masses in the parks uh, around the systems. But, ha but how are they eradicated? I mean, is there a spray program or just what you were talking about with the eggs, the egg mass that uh, you have to scrape them off? What do you do then? Sure. Okay. So um, basically we are taking an integrated pest management approach. So depending upon what time of year it is, um, any individual homeowner or landowner can actually impact this pest in a pretty pretty good way. Uh, this time of year, if you can locate egg masses, you can scrape them off. It's very easy. Uh, we just You simply take some sort of a hard item, a putty knife. We actually make scraper cards that have been distributed, and you just scrape the egg mass, and that kills 30 to 50 of them every time you do that. Just scraping them off? Just scraping them off. Okay. But you're not going to find them all. So throughout the year, you can actually band your trees with a sticky tree band. The immature stages crawl up the tree every day. It's kind of an odd strategy, but they do it. And by simply putting a band on, and we recommend Tree of Heaven, uh, because that is their preferred food source throughout the year, you can literally remove thousands per tree just by doing this. But the overall strategy is limited host removal, so removing Tree of Heaven, most of it, especially females, which produce seeds. If you leave a few males standing, we recommend treating that with a systemic insecticide, and you have to do that in the spring or early summer. Uh, the reason for this is that adults around mid-July start uh, emerging, and they'll want to seek out <coughs> they'll want to seek out a um, basically a meal from Tree of Heaven. And so what this does is it basically concentrates the population of spotted lanternfly on a given property. And it ends up killing quite a few. So we, we call them trap trees. And basically, it, uh, it draws them in. You've introduced a pesticide to them without impacting other things, and you can kill hundreds of thousands of them. had a question here from a listener, a real good one. Uh, are there any native predators for the invasive uh, fly? Um, there are, uh, certainly. So a couple of things there. Uh, we know that praying mantises... You're going to hate hearing this, but a uh, native species of stink bug, which is a predatory yeah, stink I do bug, hate hearing that, yeah. not the one you think. Okay. Uh, it's a good stink bug. A good there are, stink there, bug. there okay. is such a thing. All right. And then there are also, of course, um, parasitic wasps. So these are wasps that don't sting people, but basically lay their eggs in other insects. Mm -hmm. And these have all already been identified, but obviously the levels of these aren't anywhere near enough to deal with the populations we're seeing. Another question from a listener. Uh, what do the egg masses look like? Uh, we can scrape them, but give a few more details of what they look like. Um, certainly. So... Basically, it's like a patch of 30 to 50 uh, small beads that are covered over with wax. When the wax dries, 
it ends up looking like mud. So it literally looks like a splash of mud on the trees. Uh, we have some excellent photographs of these um, at a couple of different locations. We'll and put them on our website, too. Sure. You Your website, to. Bug Guide, Forestry Images, and the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture site. Secretary, um, you know, you were talking about uh, what they've attacked and ways to eradicate uh, the spotted leonardfly. But if they're already out there attacking apple crops, uh, attacking hardwood, um, you know, grapes, hops, you know, I, first thing I thought of is, okay, the wine industry in Pennsylvania, there were wineries popping up all the time. As far as hops go, we have uh, brewers uh, that are popping up all the time. As you said, Pennsylvania, number one in the country in hardwood. We know this region of the state, apples, very important. The, the farmers who have those crops, what can they do? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. So currently what we're doing is we're trying to get into a position where there's there's a lot more outreach to your point. I think that uh, one of the challenges we have right now is that uh, we need to have more conversation about it, which we're doing today. Um, this outreach is is extremely important. There are a lot of there's a lot of good information on our website on how to deal with spotted lanternfly. So my suggestion would be to go to our website, your website in yeah, this we'll case, a, we'll and move forward. Uh, well, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for being with us today. Fred Strathmeyer Jr. is the Deputy Secretary of the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture. Sven Eric uh, Spickinger is with the state entomologist. Sven, thank you for being back with us today. The spotted lanternfly. A new invasive species here in Pennsylvania. I say new. It's been here for three years, but still, still relatively new. Gentlemen, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up on uh, tomorrow's program, the new executive director of Penn Future, the state's largest environmental group, will be here to talk about some of the environmental challenges being faced here in Pennsylvania and what that group has laid as their priorities. That's coming up on uh, tomorrow's show, so be sure to tune in. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they're available elsewhere. More information is at upmcpinnacle.com.